Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 164, Revolutionary Deja Vu. First, as always, I want to thank our newest patrons, Peter Palov, Violeta Petrova, Erin O'Brien, and Simon Bowers, as well as a shout out to Vesco and Megan for hosting my wife and I at their village house the other weekend. It was a lot of fun. And yeah, welcome all. Thank you all so much for supporting the podcast. Now, last time we talked more about the cultural and political legacies of Stefan Stambolov how his successor Stoilov and the conservatives quickly began using the same tactics of control that they had denounced Stambolov for using, and in general, Stoilov's government began a concentrated campaign against Stambolov, attempting to harass him with lawsuits, protests, threats, all of it. Then, we talked about the shift in policy towards Macedonia, as the new government embraced support of violent groups over Stambolov's cozying up with the Ottomans. Here, I discussed some general thoughts about identity in Macedonia, and one listener wrote to me arguing that I was essentially parroting North Macedonian propaganda and speaking as if no Bulgarians lived in the territory at that time. And I appreciate hearing from listeners like this because these are incredibly complex topics, and if any of you think I'm really missing something, please feel free to write, let me know what you think, particularly if you can point to kind of sources and perspectives you think I'm missing. So kind of in that spirit, I want to take a moment to kind of address that criticism and think through it a little bit. So first, the question of kind of how to label someone's identity. Now, if a person living in Macedonia is ethnically a Slav and speaks a language that is understandable to Bulgarians living across the border, the question is, are they a Bulgarian? Even if, say, you ask them and they don't say, I'm a Bulgarian, if they don't identify that way, Are they still a Bulgarian? Is it still fair to label them that way? Take a thought experiment. If you have, say, a Hungarian, but they're born, raised, and lived their entire life in a sealed apartment with no contact with the outside world, they're raised speaking English or French or Russian or any other language, but so they know nothing about Hungary. They have no idea they're living in Hungary. They don't speak any Hungarian, but Are they still Hungarian simply because they share their genes with fellow Hungarians? To take a more practical example, let's say two Bulgarians move to Germany and have a son. Their son might identify as being only Bulgarian. They might identify as being only German or hyphenated Bulgarian German. But can we as outsiders override how this boy identifies? If he says he's German, can we say, no, he's not German, he's Bulgarian, even though he's born and raised and lived his whole life in Germany. Likewise, if he says, I'm a Bulgarian, even though he maybe he doesn't even speak the language or isn't even that familiar with the culture, do we accept that identification? Okay, take another thought experiment. What if tomorrow everyone who identifies as Bulgarian woke up and no longer identified as Bulgarian? Would the Bulgarian nation still exist? Now, I'm sharing these examples and thought experiments to help illustrate just how complicated this is. I mean, come on, I I have a master's degree in nationalism studies, and even I struggle with these questions. But 
I think this is why, you know, for a lot of people, they, they listen to me talk about uh, the way Macedonians identify and say, oh, but they're clearly Bulgarian. But my perspective is, you know, if they identify, if they tell someone who asks them, yes, I'm Bulgarian, then yeah, I think they're Bulgarians. But if they don't, I'm hesitant to, as an outsider, step in and say, yeah, yeah, yeah you, you say that you identify, per, maybe you just identify as a Christian or maybe you don't identify as anything or, or as a member of this town or village or something, but uh, you're wrong. You don't know who you actually are. I, as the outsider, know who you are and you are this. I, I just, I don't think that's the way to go about it. Yeah, I think this is something, again, that, that, that's quite complicated. You know, to me, Slavic Macedonians, they speak a language that's extremely similar to Bulgarian. And yeah, you could argue is a dialect of Bulgarian. It's it's complicated. But I just don't want, I just don't, I'm not comfortable as an outsider stepping in and simply saying that like, no, actually this is very simple. And these are simply Bulgarians. They they just don't all know that they're Bulgarians yet. Um, so that's just kind of yeah, me explaining my my thinking about this and why I take the perspective that I do. So, you know, thinking a bit more about this, though, I, I may have mentioned a very influential book called Peasants into Frenchmen about the process of creating the modern French national identity in the 19th century. And that's important, the 19th century, because, you know, we think about a lot of these, you know, kind of Western European nations as being very, very old and they, they've been around for, you know, centuries and centuries and centuries. But a lot of the times, actually, the modern conception of those nations is is just that. It's very modern, much more than we really think. And looking at peasants and Frenchmen, you know, if you say even in the, the 1830s, if you went to someone living in Brittany and asked, you know, who are you or are you French? They would say, no, I am uh, Breton. Or if you went to someone in Provence, in Provence, and, and asked them the same question, they, say, they would say, you know, je suis Provençal, I'm a Provençal. Uh, and that most of these places that today to us are just like, yeah, that's just France. But a huge portion of the population of these regions would not have identified as French until the 19th century. And now we look at that and we we can say, okay, they're, you know, they live in what's now France. Their descendants speak French. But what changed? You know, what what was the process that made these people today nearly all identify as French before identifying as you know, Breton or Provençal or something similar. And this gets to the central question of what, what builds a nation, what makes a national identity? Uh, I think on a practical level, a lot of it is education. It's schooling, universal education. You know, the, there's a reason that the kind of modern development of our more modern ideas about national identity coincided with a period in history where national governments were implementing universal or nearly universal, you know, it was a gradual process, education through things like mandatory schooling. And it was in those schools that people learned the standard national language, where they learned, uh, you know, basically this history that places them in this particular nation. And it was through that schooling, for the most part, that you convinced people to identify with these national identities, even when they did not before. And that doesn't mean that those new identities are fake or something, right? So to me, if you look at Macedonia, just in the same same way that, you know, if you have someone from Marseille, right, from the Provençal region of France, and they identify today as French, I'm not like, well, you, you're a liar. You don't actually know what you're talking about because your your ancestors identified this other way. No, that that would be silly. 
in just the same way that if I look at someone in Macedonia today, if that person identifies as a Bulgarian living in Macedonia, I accept that. If they identify purely as Macedonian, even though maybe some of their ancestors identified as Bulgarian, I accept that. I think those are valid identities. And identities always change. They're never purely fluid. And politics and, and history and things, all, all, all these forces come together to shape and mold how and why we have the identities we have and we connect with the way that we do. And because to me, these are not, you know, purely, you know, black or white, zero or ones. These are complicated things that change all the time. I don't think it's valid to come in and pretend that all this is actually extremely simple and that everyone's just making a big deal out of it. It's complicated and it's always changing. So ultimately, identity is fluid and it is practical. It might sound strange to us that someone living in a Macedonian village would begin to identify as a Greek or a Serb or a Macedonian or a Bulgarian, depending on the circumstances, but all of us do that all the time. All of us have complicated identities, right? I, who am I? I'm an American. Yes. I'm also from Washington, DC. I'm also, you know, Caucasian. I'm white. Uh, I'm also an English speaker. You know, I'm so many things. And depending on the circumstances that I'm in, in any particular moment, different aspects of those identities that I have will be more emphasized or more important or less important. I mean, just practically speaking, if someone came and said, hey, I'll give you $10 million if you identify as this other nationality, I mean, would you do it? Certainly a lot of people would say yes, but a lot of people would say no. For some people, their identity is one of the most important things to them. They would never give it up for anything. And for other people, they're like, yeah, of course, for $10 million, I'd do it in a second. And human beings have always been that way. So even when you're going back to the 19th century in Macedonia, to some people, the fact that, you know, Serbia, Greece, Bulgaria, one of these countries, you know, sent them a, a teacher and is willing to teach their children, they're like, sure, yeah, I'll identify as that particular national group if you're willing to give my children an education and therefore a chance at a better life. And to other of them, maybe if they had a pre-existing identity, they're going to say, no, I, I won't accept that. Yeah, it'd be great for my kids to have this education, but my my identity is very important to me and I'm not going to sell that for essentially like a, a bribe if you want to look at it that way. Right. So I hope for, for everyone that that's given a, a little bit of a better idea into how I view this and why I frame the Macedonian question in the way that I do. So <clears throat> to wrap it up. Let me say the things that I do believe on this subject. Many everyday Slavs living in Macedonia did not really have a strong sense of national identity in the 19th century. If you were to look at objective criteria like language, culture, religion, ethnicity, the sort of building blocks of a nation in the modern sense, those people are basically closer to Bulgarians than any other group. You know, they're closer to Bulgaria than they are to Greece or Serbia. I think that's fairly clear for the, the Slavic Macedonians. But I don't think it's fair to simply say that, oh, the Slavs living in Macedonia were Bulgarians, whether they thought so or not. People have agency and they build and identify their own identities. And it's not fair to step in from the outside and tell them that they're wrong. Whew. Okay, so I hope that cleared up some things. And again, if you think there's something I'm missing here, feel free to reach out and let me know. So with that, let's get to the regular episode. Now, 
The previous episode ended with the death of Tsar Alexander III and the coming of Tsar Nicholas II to power, signaling a huge opportunity for Prince Ferdinand to finally obtain the international recognition he so desperately wanted. All right. So that finishes, I think, by far the longest wrap-up and discussion of the previous episode ever. And all this takes us into November 1894. The Stoilov government is attempting to rebuild relations with Russia. And honestly, it's not going that well up to this point due to continued Russian anger over Bulgaria's new policy towards Macedonia, as well as the now-dead Tsar Alexander's determination to never thaw relations with Ferdinand. But now that Nicholas is on the throne, there's an opening. Stoilov and Ferdinand began by sending the Russophile Metropolitan Clement, along with a small delegation, to St. Petersburg to lay a wreath on the late Tsar's grave on behalf of Bulgaria. But, meanwhile, back in Sofia, work on attacking Stefan Stambolov continued. A prominent member of the Conservative Party, Georgi Gubidelnikov, I think maybe I got his name right, hopefully, suggested putting Stambolov on trial for financial misconduct. A parliamentary committee was formed, and many people who had been persecuted by Stambolov in one way or another happily now returned the favor. Now, this dragged on for months and months, and although it found many cases of corruption amongst Stambolov's ministers and members of his government, they were ultimately unable to pin anything on him personally. But this didn't stop the government from going after him. In January of 1895, a warrant was issued for Stambolov's arrest. The crime the murder of Belchev. So to really add insult to, to injury, Stambolov was now being accused, or actually arrested, for the murder of his friend, a murder which was intended for him. Fortunately, though, this was too much for the Bulgarian public, as well as many diplomats in the city. So once the warrant for his arrest became public, the government was heavily pressured to revoke it. You know, even people who weren't friends of Stambolov, I think, felt that this was a, a low blow. Now, the irony was that the Macedonians who had actually murdered Belchev were by this point walking free under a general amnesty put in by the Stoilov government. These men had actually by now rented an apartment overlooking Stambolov's home and followed him whenever he left it. The authorities ignored this threatening behavior despite repeated pleas by Stambolov. Instead, the government encouraged local mayors to take Stambolov's properties, bringing him into a very precarious financial situation. While Prime Minister Stoilov did not want Stambolov to be persecuted like this and refused to sign orders uh, for, for example, his properties to be confiscated, many local mayors went about taking his land from him anyways. Stambolov, actually money that Stambolov had invested in an investment policy he created for government workers so they could kind of invest for retirement and such, was also taken from him. So that by 1895, Stambolov was nearly broke and actually had to borrow money against his house just to pay his taxes. Alongside these actions, the police began to arrive at Stambolov's house and demand that they search it for criminals despite not having a warrant. Now, by this point, Stambolov was at his wit's end, exclaiming things like, If I am responsible to the Bulgarian people for a serious wrong, is it that I did not prevent Prince Alexander of Battenberg by force from leaving the country, and that, later, I forced Prince Ferdinand on the Bulgars? Do they propose to execute me for that? End quote. Now, for his part, when Ferdinand was told uh, how the persecution of Stambolov made him and his government look bad, he simply remarked that it was ironic that suddenly Stambolov was interested in following the law. For his part, Stambolov became more and more certain of his own imminent death. 
He distributed letters to journalists and diplomats, which he ordered to leave unopened until his death. He expressed the wish that he be killed on the streets at least so that his family would not be harmed in the process. And there is some evidence that the government was encouraging would-be assassins, telling them that they would receive light sentences if they were to perhaps kill the former prime minister. Now, Stambolov attempted to go abroad, both to escape the pressurized situation in Sofia and to receive medical treatment, but his application for a passport was denied. He even wrote a letter to Ferdinand apologizing for the article that he had kind of published, I mentioned in the last episode, but Ferdinand didn't answer. In part, Ferdinand wanted to ensure Stambolov didn't leave Bulgaria because he still had support abroad and he might use that support to disrupt the prince's diplomatic work. Remember, Ferdinand now has a great opportunity to finally fix relations with Russia and he can't allow Stambolov abroad because he might undermine it. Otherwise, 1894 saw the publication of Ivan Vazov's famous book, Under the Yoke, the first Bulgarian novel, as well as To Chicago and Back by well, our old friend uh, Aleko Konstantinov. Under the Yoke in particular would become a seminal work in defining the later years of Ottoman rule in the Bulgarian public imagination, which it still does. Though, again, I, I, you probably have a guess. I, I would argue it goes a little far in that, but that's another story. But of course, events related to Macedonia were also progressing during that year. Back in the summer, Gotsedelchev had joined the Macedonian Revolutionary Organization, so that means it's time to talk a bit about him. Now, born in a small town in what's now the Greek part of Macedonia, he was educated in a series of schools connected at first with the Bulgarian Uniate Church, that's the Bulgarian church connected to Catholicism, while attending Bulgarian exarchate schools later. He soon became enamored with Bulgarian revolutionary literature and stories before being sent to attend the Bulgarian high school in Thessaloniki, the same one which produced the founders of the Macedonian Revolutionary Organization. So, basically, Delchev grew up, grew up in just about the most intense kind of Macedonian-Bulgarian revolutionary space you could imagine. When he graduated from high school, like so many young educated men from Macedonia that I've mentioned in the past, he faced very few career prospects. So, he decided to enter the Sofia Military Academy, just as his friend Boris Serafov had recently done. And fun fact, I recently learned that my wife is actually the great-great-grandniece of Boris Serafov. I posted on Facebook she was his great-great-granddaughter, but I realized she's descended from his brother, the famous actor, Krastyo Serafov. So it was kind of interesting to find a family connection to uh, these some of these characters. Anyways, together, Delchev and Serafov continued their revolutionary activity in the military academy, and as a result, Delchev was eventually expelled in late 1894. Now, to be fair, he had already decided that he didn't want to stay in the army and actually intended to return to Macedonia and fight for its freedom from the Ottomans. So when he was ejected from the army, he just did that. He went back to Macedonia to teach and work with fellow revolutionaries. Serafov, on the other hand, graduated and became an officer in the Bulgarian army. This brings us again to the end of 1894 and the beginning of 1895. By this point, two distinct factions advocating for Macedonian autonomy had developed in Bulgaria. Essentially, one wanted to do this through nonviolent means, while the other more radical faction was fine with using violence. The latter group enjoyed the support of the Bulgarian minister of war, and then as the new post-Stambolov government wanted to be more, far more aggressive on the Macedonian issue, that's not really surprising. 
Still, everyone involved realized that having factions like this didn't really help the cause. And so in January 1895, a Congress was held to try to kind of reconcile the two groups. However, before it could even begin, the radical faction advocating violence broke away and formed what it called the Fraternal Union. Thus, the Congress was ultimately made up of basically the nonviolent faction and soon decided to refer to itself as the Macedonian Committee. So, we now have the Fraternal Union. They're the more radical faction that advocates violence, and you have the Macedonian Committee, which doesn't. Now, the first course of action of the Macedonian Committee was to gather information on the oppression of Christians in Ottoman Macedonia and to share this with the great powers to build public sympathy. Those attempts to build sympathy with European diplomats in Sofia basically, though, went nowhere, though the group did manage to form branches throughout Bulgaria and even in Romania. Ironically, though, the breakdown of this group over how to liberate Macedonia closely followed arguments with how to liberate Bulgaria before 1878. If you'll recall, some wanted to use nonviolent means, others wanted uprising. So <clears throat> I, th I think it's fairly interesting that if you look at how these Macedonian revolutionary groups f kind of developed and how they argued about what should be done to liberate Macedonia and join it with Bulgaria. I just think it's interesting that so much of those disagreements and those factions mirrored Bulgarian ones before 1878. So essentially, some thought that the only way to achieve Macedonian autonomy was through the intervention of great powers, again, sound familiar, while others thought that was a waste of time and they couldn't rely on the great powers, they'd only step on the back, they had to sort of get in there and do it themselves. So yeah, nearly identical debates than that we had earlier in this podcast. In the spring of 1895, the rift between the Fraternal Union and the Macedonian Committee was only widening as each group competed with the other to form branches, raise money, and generally build support. Realizing that this competition was far from helpful for either organization's aims, though, the head of the Fraternal Union, Trajko Kitanchev, called for a meeting to resolve their differences. That meeting began on March 7, 1895. While there were strong disagreements about methods, this meeting did successfully bring the two factions together under one organization. They scheduled the first Macedonian Congress for later that month to work out the details. However, when that Congress actually convened, the Fraternal Union members suddenly decided to challenge the Congress's authority and withdraw their support from this new joint action. However, once it became clear that the Macedonian Committee was basically willing to give up and you know, do things the way the Fraternal Union wanted to and give the Fraternal Union control of the new joint organization, well, unsurprisingly, the Fraternal Union members came back to the fold. So, long story short, the faction advocating for the use of violence won out. Again, not surprising considering that was the faction that had the backing of the new Stoilov government. This new unitary organization was, just in case all this wasn't confusing enough, to be called the Macedonian Committee even though that was the name of the faction that lost in the fight between them, but sure, the Macedonian Committee. Still, at least there was now one committee, and all the branches of the two organizations in towns and cities throughout the region were now unified. Trajko Kitanchev was elected the new head of the organization. Still, unity wasn't as easy as it seemed. For one, when members of the committee met with uh, Prince Ferdinand, he was hesitant about supporting them and advocated for working with the Ottomans, which is ironically what uh, Stambolov had advocated doing. Still, even the fact that Ferdinand met with them at all 
greatly upset many of the great powers, which I talked before, a lot of the European states are very upset that Bulgaria is now kind of switching towards a violent kind of path in Macedonia. So the Stoilov government was supporting the Macedonian committee, upsetting the great powers. But Ferdinand is trying to win the great powers over and obtain recognition, so he's pushing back against them, but still upsetting them by even meeting with committee members. It's a bit of a mess. In April, the Ottoman government formally accused the Bulgarian government of allowing Macedonian radicals to make trouble. Stoilov responded that if the Ottomans wanted him to crack down, they should allow the further expansion of Bulgarian schools, churches, and rail lines into Macedonia, in addition to finally implementing long-awaited reforms there. But the Ottomans refused to budge, reminding Stoilov that Bulgaria was not a sovereign state, but an Ottoman dominion. At this point, talks broke down, and the European powers stepped in to pressure Bulgaria further. Finally, amidst all this pressure, Stoilov backed down and reduced his support for the Macedonian committee, though didn't get rid of it. Stoilov still, though, met secretly with its head, Kitanchev, in May, and encouraged him to prepare an uprising in Macedonia. So, it seems Stoilov was betting that such an uprising would build more sympathy for action in Europe, much the same way the April uprising had. Again, so much about the struggle in Macedonia seems to be following the same pattern set by Bulgaria's struggle for independence. Ah, but all this talk about the fights between these Macedonian organizations and Bulgaria may have left you wondering, wait, what happened to the original Macedonian revolutionary organization that we talked about last time? Well, they had been following events in Sofia, and in March they sent a representative to meet with Kitanchev. The MRO agreed to support the Macedonian committee, but insisted on maintaining its own independence. They also agreed that both sides would keep the other informed of their plans. But, well, spoiler alert, no. And that's where I'm going to leave it for today. It's now late spring of 1895, and there's a lot going on. The Stoilov government is acting much like Stambolov's had, and is unsuccessfully trying to play diplomatic hardball with the Ottomans over Macedonia. Prince Ferdinand sees an opening for reconciliation with Russia, but soon he's going to learn just what that's going to cost him. Stefan Stambolov is being harassed left and right and fears for his life. Meanwhile, Macedonian revolutionaries are attempting to resolve their differences and act as one, but that's proving more and more difficult. Without a doubt, there are now openings for real change to occur in Ottoman Macedonia. But as usual, the great powers of Europe are dead set on maintaining peace and the status quo in the Balkans. Next time, in the final episode of this season, we'll see just what these revolutionaries will do with the secret backing given to them by Stoilov, what Ferdinand will be asked, in order, asked to do in order to finally obtain the recognition he's craved for so many years, and what will happen to the besieged person of Stefan Stambolov. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, check out the link in the description below for images, timelines, and all kinds of good information for this episode. And I'll see you in the next one.